The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Welcome, everybody. I'm so glad you could join me for the show today. I'm Diane Ray. Thanks for being present for just a little while with me. You have a lot of choices out there spinning around on the internet, so I'm glad you could stop by and hang out with me for a little bit today. So um, I'm, I'll admit it. I'm over 40. <laughs> you know, a lot of times I don't like to say my age, but you know, I'm a proud of 54 and looking around at my friends, you know, it seems that so many women are just getting started over 40. Even though we live in what seems to be a youth obsessed society, there's a revolution taking place. Old norms are being thrown out the window and women are really living some of the best years of their lives over 40. You know, a lot of my friends are coming into their own. They're starting new businesses. I mean, I was doing a little research, you know, over the past 20 years, the number of women owned businesses has grown 114% and women owned businesses now account for more than 39% of all U.S. firms. So those are good numbers, you know, and also the average age of the founders of the highest growth startups was 45. So, you know, so clearly the point is things aren't over after 40 and actually things are getting better 40, 50 and beyond. So the conversation we're going to have today is about women aging and just changing some of those old outdated ideas. And my guest today has created an incredible platform called amazingover40.com for women to be heard, to share, to support, to discuss and inspire each other to cultivate a rich community of trust, openness, and acceptance. She's doing some really amazing work. Dr. Diana Hoppe is a board-certified OBGYN. She's in private practice in San Diego, California. And she's also the author of Healthy Sex Drive, Healthy You. And her website is amazingover40.com. And this is awesome. So I'm so glad she can join me today. You know, full disclosure, also, uh, she is my doctor. And we've just had so many great talks in her office that I said, look, I've got to get you on the show. You know, this is crazy. So we finally managed to get it together. So welcome, Dr. Hoppy. I'm so glad you could talk to me today. Oh, thank you. It's been a, a few years in the making. and I'm so glad we finally got it to happen. So thank you, Diane. I know, right? (laughs) I mean, I've been coming to you. Yeah, I've been coming to you for a while. And, you know, we talk about the show and what's going on with the network. And I said, awesome, I've got to get you on. So let's talk a little bit uh, first about you and about the site. I mean, you've been um, a doctor for what? How long? A long time. I don't want to say my age. No, I am actually 57. So I'll I'll be honest about that too, since we're full disclosure. Um, I've been, let me see, I've been working in clinical practice since 1993. So what is that? 27 years? Kind of crazy. Yeah. And I've been doing OB and GYN. I stopped doing OB in 2006. And then I really focused on GYN only. And now I have my own practice in Encinitas, which is North County, San Diego. And I really focus a lot on perimenopause and menopause, which I really love helping women through that transition and realize that it, like you said in the beginning, this is a new part of life. It's a new beginning. It does not have to seem like all is over when your kids leave to go to school or, you know, you're, you move to a new place, your husband gets a new job. There's always opportunities, and this is why the site was created, to really give women education about what's happening in their lives and why it's happening, specifically hormonally, but we'll get more into that. Oh, yeah. We're going to dive right in because I I have a (laughs) lot of questions, and I know a lot of my friends have a lot of questions too, but really really what I love about your whole attitude, what you're doing with the website is I think you know we're in kind of a a new time, a new renaissance. I mean, I don't feel that my... 50s are the experience of my mother's 50s or my grandmother's, you know, and and I think we're we're at such a a cool time where you know women are are just coming forward. We're we're embracing our power, you know. Like I mentioned, starting new businesses. I mean, I'm starting some new ventures. I've got some other friends that are like making shifts after their kids have left the nest, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know, doing new things. And you know, we we have a lot of energy. You know, we still have a lot of things to say. So. It's it's important, and what you're doing is so important to 
you know, get that message out. So let's just talk a little bit about, you know, the main message you want to get across for women over 40, which is why you set up the site. You know, there's a lot of new research, new information out there that we need to know about. And you're, you're a great source for that. Right. Then that's basically when you look at my website, it has like education community, it has recipes and products, but the real focus is education because I do believe knowledge is power and we need to have the correct information. Unfortunately, I see so many patients come through my office and they're getting misinformation from their physicians or their caregiver, their caretakers, um, not caregiver, you know, primary caregivers, their different medical practices that they might be seeing for guidance and they're coming to me and they're really lost. They don't know what's happening. They're feeling like they're going crazy. Literally I have people saying, I think I'm going crazy, you know, with perimenopause and the menopause. And I go over and say, this is a natural process. And some women are more sensitive to the hormonal changes versus others. And there's a lot of things we can do. So when a doctor says, oh, nothing you can do, just have a glass of wine and go to sleep. That's not a real answer to what is happening and how we really can thrive in this period of time. Right. And the big difference too, I remember asking my mother, you know, what her experience was going through menopause and her answer was, I gripped my teeth and bared it, you know? Like, right. And some women still get that kind of guidance, or do you, you call it guidance, they're told just to deal with it, you know, or take an antidepressant or just suck it up. Right. And that's really not the best information and, and um, recommendation. And that's, really the impetus behind me starting my amazing over 40. It was like all these women were coming to my office through my door saying, what is happening to my body and why is this happening? And my marriage is going downhill. My job, I can't think my brain has brain fog. I'm irritable at my children, you know, all these things and what's happening. And now we have a way to actually get the information that's true, that's reliable, that's recently updated. And it's a great resource rather than going to the web where we see all these different sites and who knows what's writing, who's writing it and if it's really true or not. So I really wanted a site that women could be assured that this is correct information. It's the most up to date and that it's a community. As women, we want to connect. We want to feel like we're not alone. And that's where this community is such a vibrant, um, how do you say it? It's almost like a baby, right? <laughs> because it's, it's this way that we could all connect in this great group and then have ways to get together like retreats or webinars. So it's really an access for women to reach their power and be able to embrace that with other women. No, I love that. I mean, I, I think community is is so important in being able to to share ideas. But the other point that you're making that I think is really valid too is while it's I mean, it's great to have support and ask your friends, you know, going to a professional like you right. is really that you know, because I like I had my sister was asking me questions, you know, she's going through menopause and you know, what should I do? And I said, Look, don't just go to me you know, go, go to the source. Like my, but my experience could be totally different. I mean, and you must see that too in your practice where like, we're all so individual and we're so different that there's not a one size fits all approach to. Uh, that's exactly you know, true. And that's, yeah. And one woman might go through menopause or and we can also define all that, the terms, cause that can also get really confusing. Uh, one woman might experience this transition, like without having any issues. Another woman is going like crazy and having migraine headaches and irregular periods and having a lot of issues that can definitely be addressed. So rather than just put them off and just dismiss them, I think there's ways that we can explain it. And so that there's more understanding and then realize what are the different options there are to best like handle the symptoms and then be able to literally thrive, be able to sleep at night, be able to think clearly, be able to be feeling more joyful rather than depressed, because that's also another symptom that women can have during this period of time. So it's, it's really to give more hope. And what's funny is one of my patients said to me once, well, you know, you give me a lot of hope. And I said, well, that's, that's great. I really appreciate that. She's no, but it's in your name, hopes in hoppy. And I said, oh my gosh, that's so funny because, you know, my last name is Hoppy, H-O-P-P-E. And within that title, in that, in the, within that name is Hope, H-O-P-E. So I thought that was really kind of funny that she said that because there is hope always. There's always hope for people. There is hope. And I love that you have all this great information available on your site, just at your fingertips, because I, I for one, am all, like, I like to get the information. I want to ask 
a lot of questions. And I think the more that we know about what's going on in our bodies, we can make informed decisions, you know, rather than just kind of blindly accept advice from people, you know, the more, the more that we know and can recognize what's going on in our own bodies, you know, the better. And, and like the longer that I can stay out of a hospital, you know, Absolutely. Yeah. you don't no, want to no be surgery. on medications if you don't need them. You don't want to be on anything that is going to mask the symptoms too. Like a lot of times patients will come to me and the doctor has prescribed an antidepressant, which may help somewhat with the hot flashes and, you know, may help somewhat with the, with the mood changes, et cetera, but it's really not addressing the core issue of what's happening. And this is a very natural transition. So let's, let's kind of delve into that in the sense of like, what is perimenopause and what is menopause. So menopause is when you no longer can be reproductive, which means you've lost the ability to, to ovulate, to have a child, and it's 12 months without having a period. Prior to that time, it's called perimenopause, and that's the, the months to years prior to menopause, which means no period for 12 months. So that's just the definition of menopause, but you can have a lot of symptoms before that time with perimenopause, and that can last two to eight years. Hot flashes, night sweats, mood swings, irritability, decreased libido, um, brain fog, vaginal dryness. I mean, there's so many things happening and women are grasping for where can they go for information. And Google, the internet has some good places and they have some others that I've looked at and there's just misinformation and it really drives me crazy. So for the last few years, I've been working on Amazing Over 40 to really feel proud that as a female OBGYN and someone who's gone through menopause, I can now offer my kind of wisdom, my, my knowledge, the things I've seen in the studies, and then be able to give women the options they have. Because as you said, not every woman is alike. Every woman is unique. And we need to find the right kind of treatment plan, lifestyle changes, things that's going to really work with her life the best versus other women. Right. And you were talking about disinformation and that's so true. There's so much stuff out there and you can go into, you know, the black hole, the rabbit hole of the yes. internet, you know, and I've done it and, and things can get, get scary. So, I mean, one thing that's, that's come up a lot, you know, recently, and I think I've asked you about this too, you know, women that are going into menopause, you know, we're curious about hormone replacement therapy. There's definitely a lot of misinformation out there. Um, you know, the message that I've heard from a lot of women is that, you know, I'm not going to do it. You know, I'm afraid to take the estrogen. It feeds breast cancer. Like mm -hmm. women are being told that they're going to get breast cancer. So, you know, I did one of those quick Google searches before we talked, oh, good, good. Went, down, went down the hole a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, and I read that about 80% of all breast cancers are ER positive, mm -hmm. you know, meaning the, the cancer cells grow in response to the hormone estrogen. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what do those numbers mean? Like, is that true, you know, or yeah, break so that down a little bit for us? Yeah, it's first of all, just say it's, it's confusing because even when people talk about the studies, they're talking about different types of hormones, et cetera. So let's just, let's just first start with breast cancer. 80% of breast cancer is not familial. So that means there's no genetic mutation, no genetic, no family history. So that's one thing that some women don't understand that they think, well, if I get breast cancer, it's because I have to have a family history. 80% of breast cancer cases do not have any family history associated with it. 20% do. And there's that BRCA1 and 2 gene that are probably um, accountable for 5% of all the breast cancers. So then when you go into breast cancer, then you look at what the receptor status is. That means did the breast, did the tumor that was made, did it make receptors for estrogen, make receptors for progesterone, and then receptors for something called HER2, which is another receptor hormone. So basically what the cancer cell wants to do is it wants to get blood flow, right? It wants to grow. It wants to thrive. It wants to mutate. It wants to basically get as big as possible. And that's what cancer cells do. So they actually make receptors on them to get more blood flow. So that's why majority of, when you look at cancer cells, they will have estrogen receptor or progesterone receptor positive. So when you look at the normal tissues in our body, okay, let's say non-cancerous tissue, we're talking the vaginal tissues, the brain, the heart, the bones, the various other body parts, we have estrogen and progesterone receptors in those tissues. Those are normal receptors because those tissues need blood flow. They need to have the things that estrogen and progesterone do for them. So when someone says, well, I had estrogen receptor positive, 
and to be honest, I got diagnosed with breast cancer. So this is what's kind of somewhat, not even ironic, but kind of eerie in some ways is because now I understand so much more about breast cancer. When 2018, I got diagnosed with stage one breast cancer. And the medical oncologist said, well, you know, you're estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor positive, and you need to get off your hormone therapy. And I had a long discussion with her, but my point is I said, well, don't we have estrogen receptors and progesterone receptors through our body normally in all our tissues, various parts of our body? She said, yes. I said, so therefore, if I'm trying to get something that's going to rid all of the estrogen in my body and all the progesterone, I'm just trying to decrease the risk for breast cancer, but I'm not going to feed the other parts of my body that are looking for the estrogen, like the bone and the brain and the heart. So I hope I didn't get too far out there with that, but um, I hope that makes sense. And let me know if that did not make sense. Right. No, but you made a good point is that estrogen, we need it. It's something that is created in our bodies, something that we need for uh, our bones, um, you know, our hearts, Right. I mean, I think the message sometimes is, is diluted that, well, you you know, you need to get off the birth control pill, you know, estrogen feeds cancer. Like that's the message that I think a lot of women get, or at least some of the women that I've talked to and actually a good, a good friend of mine just this year uh, went through what you did. She had stage one, um, you know, they, they caught it early and she had a a lumpectomy, but they told her immediately, you know, get off any estrogen. Right. And and so let me go back a little bit there. We Our bodies normally, the whole reason we're here is to procreate, to have more, right, the kid, children in the sense of that's what our menstrual cycle is for. Okay. That's so from a physiological, biological standpoint, we have menstrual cycles that we ovulate at mid cycle. We release the egg and then the egg tries to find a sperm and, and get fertilized. And then the uterus gets primed with the lining to basically let the fertilized egg implant and then go through the pregnancy. So during the reproductive years, that is what's happening pretty much every month, unless you get pregnant and have a child or you're on the birth control pill or other ways that are inhibiting that from happening. Once we reach menopause, that's about age 50 or 51 is average age United States. And when you look at the 1900s and prior to the 1900s, our lifespan was really not much more than 51 years of age. So that meant we didn't live till menopause or we would die around the time of menopause. Now in 2020, our lifespan for the average American woman is about 83 to 84 years of age. So if we look at 51 to 84, we have 33 years of what are we going to do during that period of time and how we're going to live our lives and then get the right information on Should you go on hormones? Should you not go on hormones? But at least have the right information about what's best for you and not just blank statements say all hormones cause cancer, all hormones are bad, because that's where things get really cloudy and confusing. And that's where you have to talk about the studies. And that's where something we can always do more in the the future, because there's so much information that is somewhat muddied because people throw terms around in different types of dosages and different routes, and they make global statements that really aren't correct. Exactly. And and just to make that distinction, um, just talk a little bit about the study that where a lot of that came from. Mm-hmm. And then recently there was uh, some new some new information that came out. I think it was the Lancet that kind of clarified that a little bit. Like, wasn't there a big blanket study that everybody mm-hmm. or, or yeah. many doctors referred to where that information came from? Right. So what you're referring to is the Women's Health Initiative. And the Women's Health Initiative was a study that came out in July of 2002. So about 18 years ago, which is kind of crazy when you think about it so long ago, but it seems like it was just yesterday. Yesterday, Yeah. Um, And so what that study did is they looked at two different hormones versus placebo. So placebo means no hormone. And they looked at women who had a hysterectomy and then those that still had a uterus. So hysterectomy means removal of the uterus. So they gave women Premarin, which is pregnant mare's urine. And then those that had a uterus, they gave them Prempro, which is Premarin with synthetic progestin. And they then looked at cardiovascular disease, that is heart disease, stroke, and heart attack. And they also looked at breast cancer. And I think many of you can remember when you heard on the news, everyone get off their hormones because it causes breast cancer, it causes stroke yes. and heart attack. And every woman, Katie Couric was saying on TV, all the TV stations, you know, get off your hormones is the worst thing that ever happened. Well, what didn't make sense is for years prior to that, we had known that women actually are protected against heart disease for about 10 years after menopause. And then they kind of caught up with men 
regarding the risk with regard to risk of heart disease. So the purpose of the study was really to show that Premarin and Prempro would help decrease the risk for heart disease. That was the goal of Wyeth at the time was the pharmaceutical company who was funding the investigation. So what they found in women that were 63, so the average age of the woman in the trial was 63, not 51. So that's 12 years past the onset for most women with menopause. So that's really important to know because then we've passed that 10-year window that we thought was maybe the window of opportunity for heart protection. So when you look at the 63-year-olds and then you looked at how many smoked, how many actually smoked was 50% of the women smoked. Now we know smoking is a huge factor, a huge factor for cardiovascular disease. So that was something that they didn't really tell the population that that's a huge risk factor. So if you smoke, you absolutely want to stop smoking. There's no benefit from smoking, and that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> right. But let's get back to this. So when they looked at the women who were younger in this study of the Women's Health Initiative, that is the women 50 to 59 years of age, they had less risk of stroke and heart attack than the women that were older. So the bottom line point from that aspect was that estrogen, if given within 10 years of the onset of menopause, is cardioprotective. It is anti-inflammatory. It decreases plaque formation. And that's a huge point that I want to make sure everyone gets, that it depends on the timing of when you start the hormone therapy. And this is for heart disease I'm talking about. So if someone is 65 has not been on hormones, and then she wants to get on some hormones for various reasons. I always look at their risk for heart disease with regard to their lipid panel, look at their coronary calcium scores, look at things that would make their heart and their atherosclerotic load kind of like I'd get an idea of where that is. Because we don't want to give women who have a lot of plaque hormones because that's going to cause the vessel to dilate and then shoot off for the heart attack and the stroke. So again, if that doesn't make sense, please let me know. No, absolutely. And I'm so glad you could clarify the information from that study, because you can see what happens when, when things are kind of cherry picked and then those messages get out there that it it's totally wrong. You know, so if you're a woman in her early fifties and you're experiencing some, you know, menopausal issues that uh, taking uh, the estrogen or progesterone that could really benefit, you know, and the fear might keep you from from doing that. I mean, and, and I can say from my experience, um, just I've only been doing the hormone replacement for, uh, you know, what, a little over a year or something, but I experienced just a huge relief immediately in, you know, the brain fog and the mood swings, things that I had never experienced before. You know, I'm not a, a generally depressed person, mm-hmm. but then when I'm like, you know, crying in the kitchen for no, for a stupid reason, I'm like, this is it's wrong. Not, do the, not do the onions. You're not cutting onions. Yeah. No, I don't, <laughs> I don't cook. Ask any of my friends, you know, I have no skills. So that's where the concern was like, look, this is, you know, this is crazy. I shouldn't be feeling like this. I want to be clear. I want to be sharp. Right. And, and, and then the thing I also want to make sure the two points sorry, I'm just, I get so passionate about these things, is is the Prem Pro, that group, the, the Prem Pro group had the increased risk of breast cancer. The Premarin only group had less breast cancer than the placebo group. So when women say estrogen causes cancer, if they're using the Women's Health Initiative as a yardstick, that is not true. They had less breast cancer in the Premarin group, which is the Premarin, the pregnant mare's urine. That's the estrogen only group. The Prem Pro group is the one that had increased risk of breast cancer. And that's a synthetic progestin. It's not natural progesterone, the thing that your body makes. And the other point is that it's oral. So oral is a lot different than transdermal. Transdermal means through the skin. So that's where people just make these statements and they don't talk about what's the dose, what's the route of administration, is it synthetic or is it the same thing your body makes, which is called bioidentical. And there are bioidentical hormones made by pharmaceutical companies and there are bioidentical hormones made by compounding pharmacies. And there's a whole debate about are they safe, are they not safe? And I really think the bottom line is it depends on your compounding pharmacy and you make sure that they follow certain guidelines and they are accredited. So that's a whole nother discussion, but there are some doctors who will not give bioidentical hormone therapy through a compounding because it's not FDA approved, which is, you know, it is what it is, but there are FDA approved medications out there for hormone replacement that are FDA approved, that are available, both patches, orally, 
different routes. Got it. So just to just to clarify between the bioidentical and the and the other one. So by, by bioidentical, that's something that's lab created that mole- that the molecular structure mimics what our bodies create. Exactly. So it's the same molecule, the estradiol. So if you get bioidentical estradiol, let's say orally, you can take estradiol orally. You can do estradiol in a patch. That's twice a week. You can do estradiol in a gel that you put on. And then the type of progesterone would be called progesterone, just micronized progesterone. You can get it at CVS, whatever pharmacy, and it comes in 100 to 200 milligrams. Now, some women don't necessarily fit that set dose. So I go to a compounding and I might do 50 or 150 because they need just somewhat in between. It's not like all those doses, everyone fits it. But the good news is that the um, pharmaceutical companies are making more dosages. So we have a lot more ability to tailor and titrate for our patients. And the stuff that you described, the Premarin that's made from the pregnant mare's urine, what, what would that be called? That is called <laughs> conjugated equine estrogen. So it means that it comes from equine, which is horse. It's a type of estrogen and it does have estradiol, but it also has other types of estrogens in it. So that would be different than estradiol that you'd get in the patch or estradiol you take orally. And a lot of times we don't necessarily want to do oral estrogen because it can potentially cause the increased risk of clotting of deep venous thrombosis. So that's where we're seeing a lot of trend, more transdermal therapy, where it does not cause any increase in coagulation factors. There's so much more to talk about. We're going to take just, (laughs) I've got a lot, I've got a lot to ask you. We'll take just a short break and then we'll be right back with more Dr. Diana Hoppy. and make sure you check out her website, Amazing Over 40. I'm Diane Ray. We'll be right back. Practical spirituality. Positive messages. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, The Diane Ray Show. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me after the break. I'm Diane Ray talking about women's health today with Dr. Diana Hoppy, and she's the creator of an amazing website. It's called Amazing Over 40. <laughs> I love that word, amazing. And I hope that you get a chance to check it out. It's just some great information. And we're having a, a really great conversation here, lots of information to share about women's health menopause, what you can do. In the last segment, we uh, talked a lot about hormone replacement therapy and some of the uh, myths that are out there and what's going on and getting the latest information from Dr. Hoppy. So um, also, you know, I've been hearing some conflicting information about, you know, for a, a long time, the gold standard for detecting breast cancer is the mammogram. And you shared a little bit in the last segment of your own experience of going through breast cancer and um, you know, dealing with that, you had stage one. So I've heard from some other uh, teachers and speakers in the women's health world, you know, mammograms, you don't have to do it. Don't do it every year. I mean, what's your thought on that? First off, I'd say, make sure you get a 3D mammogram or tomosynthesis. So a 3D means three-dimensional. And it's going to look at your breast, not just from a 2D standpoint, like a book where it's the front and the back cover, but actually the pages within the book. That's the 3D mammogram. And that's normally they referred those women for 3D for those that had dense breast tissue. But really everyone should get a 3D because it's a more sensitive way to look for any breast cancer. And it also increases the sensitivity of detection and decreases the need for follow-ups that may not be necessary. So when they did my mammogram every year, I was going because I do have dense breasts and I got a 3D mammogram. So on my 3D mammogram that I had January 2018, they saw something that was called an asymmetry which means a little thickening that looked a little different. And so you never want to get a call from a radiologist at night saying that you have to come back for some studies. So I got a call from the radiologist and I I said, oh, I'm sure it's nothing. He's like, well, I really think you need to come back in and we check it out. Well, bottom line, we got it checked out, did a biopsy, et cetera. And and bottom line, it turned out to be stage one breast cancer, which was fortunate in that it was diagnosed so early and it was only picked up because of that 3D mammogram. So I get somewhat passionate about that too, because I really want women to be 
able to be diagnosed because there's something there, hopefully they'll pick it up on that. And then if not, there's also ultrasound that can help and some other new types of ways they're trying to find ways to look at breast cancer detection even better, losing maybe some like, well, MRI is one of the best ways, but you can't do screening MRIs on women because it's too expensive and exposed sometimes to contrast. So bottom line right now, the best is the 3D mammogram and plus minus maybe ultrasound if needed. That's interesting because I've never had, um, you know, a, my primary care doctor never mentioned 3D and I've just been getting, I guess, the regular one where they kind of squish you. Right. You, know, you still get plate. squished. You still get squished. Uh- <laughs> Oh, well, you know, I guess you can't, can't have everything. So you should ask your, your healthcare provider for just say you want a 3d mammogram and they would send you to a certain place that provides that. Not every place does that, right? That's correct. That's exactly right. And if they say, no, they can't. I mean, most women will have some dense breast tissue in their breasts. I mean, your breasts are made of fibrous tissue and some fatty tissue. And so basically I give everyone a 3d mammogram and if they don't have, I mean, then there's also cash prices at some radiology groups that if your insurance really just gives you a really hard time, it might be worth it to look at what is the a discounted price that maybe your radiology group might offer you. Because I do believe the 3D is the best way to detect. And should we still adhere to that yearly uh, testing regimen? Well, what's interesting about that is when you look at breast cancer, it really increases with age. So when they say one in eight women will develop breast cancer, that's by the age of 80. Okay. So breast cancer incidence increases as we age. So if it increases, we really shouldn't be decreasing the interval. We should definitely be doing a mammogram every year after age 50. And when they say, oh, you can go every two years, I personally believe that's that's (laughs) poor medicine because you're not really going with what the physiology of breast cancer is. That is, breast cancer increases with age. If we wanted to detect it and detect it early, we want to get a mammogram every year. And so, again, have your doctor give you a mammogram every year. If they don't, find a new doctor. <laughs> Sorry, but I just feel <laughs> you got to fight for That's yourself true. sometimes. Well, you know, you did give me the prescription to go get the 3D mammogram. And I've been lax. You know, I think I'm, I'm two years where I haven't had one. So I'm definitely due to get my mammogram. So that that's on my list. I'm yeah. going to make well, that call. We all have I promise. Lists. Yeah. But between <laughs> age 40 and 50, it should be every one to two years after age 50 it should be every year. Well, I'm saying it now on the show that I am definitely going to be getting that, you know, sooner rather than later. And I wanted to ask you another, about another test that I've heard about called a thermogram. Mm-hmm. And that's, I've read about it in like some of these natural awakening magazines and things like that. What, what is the difference between that and and what you're just, you know, describing as a 3D mammogram. Right. So thermography uses more of an ultrasound technology with heat. So it's looking for heat in different parts of the body. And when you get a thermogram of the breast, it's looking for different heat patterns within the breast using kind of like an ultrasound technology with um, heat. Okay. So when you do a mammogram that is using radiographic, so you're kind of an x-ray. So that's a different modality of what they're using. But the thermogram actually can detect things very early because it can pick up inflammation. So any areas that heat up, that is more red, that means more inflammation, more potential blood flow, that may signal an abnormality. So if someone gets a thermogram, they get a baseline. And then if everything looks completely normal, then they'd say, okay, repeat in six months to a year. If there's something that looks a little suspicious, they might say, come back in three months and then recheck it. So the thing about thermography is they do find something on the thermogram that's suspicious after two times, you're going to need to get the mammogram to actually get the biopsy done. Okay. Or, so you or should an ultrasound just, to get the biopsy. Mm-hmm. So definitely go for the 3D mammogram for the most accurate results. Right. But I'm not against thermography per se. I just think that the thing about thermography is if they find something, they pick it up. It may be that you wait three months. Those three months may be nothing, but for some women, they might be freaked out or scared. So um, I think it's a great thing if it, everything looks totally normal and hundred percent, if they want you to come back to recheck it uh, three, six months, it's probably going to be fine, but some women don't want to wait that long. And they might say, Hey, I want to go in for my mammogram, just to check it out and maybe get an ultrasound too, to make sure everything's clear. Right. No, that's great information. Cause I had read about thermograms and, you know, just kind of wanted to know what the, the pros and cons were 
um, about going that route. So that's really interesting. So also, you know, as we're, as we get older, you know, our, our bodies are changing, you know, we might be putting on a little weight and kind of wanting to, wanting to deal with that. So I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, diet and, and supplements and, you know, some information that you can share that we can use to optimize the stage of life. I mean, cause, and, and that's another thing where there's so much information out there. I mean, I'm taking like fistfuls of stuff, you know, but there were some general things that I was low in, in the beginning when I first had uh, blood tests done that I wasn't really aware of, like, you know, low in magnesium, uh, low mm-hmm. in vitamin D kind of getting a handle on that. So what are some of the things that we should be looking at at, at this stage? Well, I think after 40 and as, as each decade after that, we're really not probably absorbing as much nutrients as we used to. And our food really doesn't have the same amount of nutrients that it used to. That is the minerals that were in our soil are no longer there. The soil is being depleted. So the fruits and the vegetables that we eat don't have the same amount of iron or magnesium, certain components in them. So that's why I'm more of an advocate now of taking like a multivitamin and, and certain supplements. Now, there's a lot of debate about that. And some, I think, of the national agencies say, no, we don't need to take um, any vitamins and that we don't need any supplements. But I think it really depends on whether you want to be proactive with your health and, and get things before they start necessarily going downhill. So when you actually look at what's on our foods, what's in an apple, let's say 20, 30, 40 years ago, we don't have like an eighth of the iron that was used to be like in an apple. So we should definitely still eat organic fruits and vegetables. And there's a great website, ewg.org, Environmental Working Group. And they do the, the, the clean 15 and the dirty dozen. And those are the fruits and vegetables that really you should buy organic. And then they give you the list that can be buying, that can be purchased, excuse me, um, conventionally. That means what things really need to be organic with less pesticides because the pesticides can get into the fruit like apples, very thin. They can have a lot more pesticides than, let's say, a banana because it's got a thicker peel. So it's a great site, ewg.org. And I love that to kind of give you just a baseline of how you can eat better just getting the fruits and vegetables and other things for your family. So back to the supplements, though. Um, what I normally recommend is not necessarily a whole bag full of things. Uh, sometimes my patients will bring a like, grocery bag of all the stuff that they've been told that they need to take. And maybe for some, they may need that. But I think for the majority, they really just need four or five basic things. I'd say a multivitamin that has like phytonutrients, so minerals, vitamins, um, some other things that can help with um, inflammation. There is omega-3 fatty acids, which are your fish oils. That's going to protect for your brain and different parts of your tissues and omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, Vitamin D. Vitamin D is very important. And again, you're going to hear controversial arguments on both sides on this one, but I do think vitamin D is highly important for your health, not just for your bones, but they also have found it to be protective against certain cancers. So vitamin D and then a vitamin B a B complex that would include all the Bs. So B1, B2, B3, B5, B6, B7, B9, and B12. So all the Bs are also highly important for our health and we're not getting enough through our fruits and vegetables because we just don't have the same kind of soil that we had. And the last would be a probiotic. And some of my patients really thrive on a probiotic. Others can get it through fermented foods and other ways that they eat. But that's pretty much in a nutshell, my five main things that I really recommend for my patients. Well, probiotics, I, I love, I mean, that's definitely changed my life for the better. Mm -hmm. And vitamin D I think is so interesting because first of all, it's not really a quote vitamin, right? Correct. It's actually a hormone. Yeah. And so it works on different parts of your body and it works on the bone to help, you know, calcification, keep your bones strong. But they've also found now that vitamin D is really important with certain cancers. And with interesting with breast cancer, we were talking about in the previous episode was, um, when we looked at women with different levels of vitamin D, those that had the highest vitamin D levels, that is the quartile, which is the quarter, the quarter group that had the highest levels of vitamin D, had the least risk of recurrence of breast cancer. So there definitely is a link between vitamin D and the risk of recurrence of breast cancer. So that's, I thought was a really important, and, that, and that's on my drdianahoppy.com site. But I think actually, you know, it is on my amazing over 42. Um, I'll make sure it's on that, the vitamin D study with regard to breast cancer. Yeah, that's good to know because for the longest time, you just, I just heard, oh, vitamin D, you know, go out in the sun. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then, you know, there was the whole skin cancer 
uh, scare, which, mm-hmm. I mean, it's great to tell people what's going on, but I think then everybody kind of things swung so far in the other direction. Right. Like, you know, we're not going outside, you know, I mean, I'm spending so much time inside and I try to get out and walk and, and things like that in the afternoon. Um, but yeah, vitamin D I became aware of, you know, a few years ago. And then I think you and I had talked about it too, when I did the blood test and I saw I was low. Mm-hmm. So I've been kind of keeping an eye on that. So that's good to know that be complex, a good multi. So really just taking so much stuff sometimes is overkill, right? Like- well, yeah, because some of the things overlap. So like you might be taking a magnesium that's ultra, mag- that's additional magnesium when you get enough in the multivitamin. Um, there is something called calm, which is a magnesium supplement that for a lot of my patients, I recommend just to sleep a little bit better and to have bowel movements to keep you more regular. And that's a, a great thing, but you don't need too much magnesium because then you might have diarrhea or some other side effects. So sometimes you're getting too many things that you don't necessarily need an overlap of. Like with the B vitamins, you're going to excrete them through your kidney. That is, you're going to urinate them out literally. And so you don't need to really be taking extra when all you're going to be doing is literally peeing it out. So you don't need to take that much of those vitamins, but I do think an adequate amount is good. And so sometimes what I have my patients do is bring their whole bag of stuff and then I go through it and then say, okay, these are things you really need. And these are things you probably don't need to be spending money on because sometimes it's just too much. And it's just, you know, it's just, you don't need to be spending the money on things that you're already getting enough amount through what you're getting through the other supplements. Right. And then just eating cleaner and mm-hmm. getting, getting some better food. And I, it's, it's interesting what you're saying, you know, definitely I'm going to check out that site for the organic food, ewg.org. Mm-hmm. But I've noticed, you know, over the past 10 years or so, I mean, things have changed like peaches, I think taste horrible, you know, bananas have no flavor. I mean, our food supply has really changed. So you really have to be a little more vigilant and look for the the best that you can get. And yeah, the farm to fresh. You'd really love farmer's markets if possible. Like um, I've been lucky enough to travel to Italy and some places and you look at the farmer's markets there and their fresh fruits and vegetables. I mean, they go to the market every two to three days, you know, and they, they walk which is exercise, which is great. They walk to get the fresh fruits and vegetables. They walk back home and they're not getting the pesticides. They're not getting the preservatives because we go to grocery stores and the grocery stores make the food look good and with colors and different chemicals they add and also preservatives. And that's really not what our body should be exposed to. So that's a whole nother discussion, but that's where EWG can definitely come in and help a lot of the listeners. Understand. Right, that's a, a great resource. And I wanted to mention just a couple other things while we still have had some time. So something that I've been uh, reading a lot about too, that we ignored for a long time is sleep. And a mm. lot of people are, you know, finally coming out of the closet saying that, you know, I'm not getting enough sleep. And then, you know, for a while it was kind of a badge of honor that, oh, I only sleep four hours a night. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I can, I can work all day on five hours. And now we're finding out how detrimental that really is to not get enough sleep, you know, and good uninterrupted sleep, you know, not waking up four or five times. Mm -hmm. I mean, have you seen just a real increase of people with those kind of issues? And well, I think you're completely right. Sleep is is now being recognized as another health factor, literally, like if we're not getting enough sleep, we're actually harming our health. And more studies are showing that lack of sleep can increase cortisol, cortisol can cause, you know, a lot of my women patients, um, they say, I'm, I, I can't lose my weight. You know, I'm not losing weight. I'm trying everything. One of the questions I ask is, are you sleeping? And are you sleeping soundly? Because if you're waking up four or five times a night, your body's not getting the the sleep, the rejuvenation, the uh, replenishment and what the body needs to do during that time. That's the time where it's supposed to be restoring of all the tissues and basically getting back the electrolytes and the chemicals and things for the body to be at rest per se, but it's really a a restoration of what happens during your sleep. And if you're being interrupted, you're not getting a good sound sleep. You're not getting that REM sleep which means the restful sleep and you're waking up irritated and and anxious sometimes and just you don't have energy you're fatigued and that's an ongoing process especially with women with hot flashes and night sweats they're having that every night and then it's cumulative which means on top of every night it's getting worse and worse and then they wonder why they're not happy you know so there's basic things and sleep is huge and i always ask my patients about how is their sleep and are they getting enough sleep and are there ways we can make your sleep better 
unfortunately, some of my patients, you know, their husband snores really loud. And you're like, okay, well then what can we do about that? Can he get some treatment and, or you have earplugs and, or maybe sleep in a different room, you know, still have intimacy, but be able to sleep soundly because sleep is so important. And I can't even just, you know, describe it because when I was in residency years ago, we never got to sleep at night because we were up all night, you know, doing babies. And when I got home, I was always like so tired. And I'm like, why do I have this headache? And why do I feel nauseous? And why do I just feel kind of just, uh, this malaise general. And it's because of lack of sleep. And now I must be confessing to you, I love to sleep. I sleep as long as I want to sleep on the weekends. <laughs> and if some, if I get tired by the weekdays, I go to sleep. I'm like, you know what? My body's tired. I need sleep. So listen to your body also. But there's great sleep um, websites also. There should be some blogs on my site about good sleep and what they call sleep hygiene. Just means like good practices for keeping your bedroom kind of cool and quiet and dark, and that you really want the bedroom just for sleep and other activities like maybe sex, right? But um, you don't want to have your computer there. You don't want to have uh, a lot of distractions, a TV. You don't want any of that in the bedroom. You want the bedroom to be like a sanctuary for sleep. Right. Your oasis. Exactly. I, I, and I'm with you. I love to sleep and I try to do it for as long as possible. <laughs> Although I will admit too here on the show that I am the snorer. And so <laughs> I shouldn't blame my husband. Excuse me about that. Right. Pardon me. Yeah. And he he still snores some too. But I've I've had a, like vacation with my sister, and she's like, "We we can't share a room. Get out. You snore." So it it is an issue. And I've tried to find different ways. Uh, some of those snore stoppers, you know, things that you shove up your nose. I mean, I've I've tried a couple, and they do kind of work and and lessen the snoring. But also like leaning into uh, the sex part of the show because I'd like to have the last part of the show to talk to you about that. Cause I think that's important too. Um, I've found that like friends of mine, long-term couples, it's not uncommon to have a separate room, right? Mm -hmm, Where, mm -hmm. I mean, they're still getting together for sex, but there's like, they prefer to sleep separately. And I, and I think that's great. Like that's okay. Right. Don't you think that's right. not I mean, an unhealthy thing? There are some couples that don't sleep together because they're not in intimate together. That is, there are some of my patients who come in, they're kind of like, like roommates with their husbands in that the, the sex is no longer there and they're not having that kind of intimacy and they're kind of roommates, literally. Now, that's not necessarily the, what we want as ideal. What we'd like is them to still have some intimacy in whatever way that means. It doesn't mean you have to have sex every night. It just means being intimate and cuddling and hugging and being affectionate because that shows how it really helps your body with oxytocin and the endorphins. And that's where my book comes in. I kind of talk about what are the reasons where intimacy is really important. And it doesn't need to be like you're a nymphomaniac, like sex in the city. I mean, it's just not that's not the norm right? And so as we get older, sometimes our sex drive can decrease. And there are time in our life that sex life, that sex um, drive can decrease. And in menopause, it doesn't have to necessarily be that way and that you might find even more freedom and more likely to have a higher sex drive. But if sex hurts because the tissues have gotten so thin, and this is where I alluded to in the last segment, we talked about estrogen and how it brings blood flow. Well, one of the main tissues is the vaginal tissues. And when those vaginal tissues get dry, it hurts. It feels like knives or sandpaper, and it's very uncomfortable. And some women feel embarrassed. They don't want to talk to their partner. They don't want to have sex. The partner doesn't, their husbands or partner don't, doesn't not want to have sex because they don't want to hurt their, you know, their wife or their partner. And so it can get a very uncomfortable situation when it's really something that can be so easily taken care of. And the reason I wrote my book, The Healthy Sex Drive, Healthy You, was because sex drive in women can be somewhat complicated and it, it can vary. It's not like it's this continuum of, of the same amount every month or the same amount every year. We have a lot of changes in our lives as do men. But in women, we have to kind of overlay that whole hormonal aspect with perimenopause and menopause, whereas men can have decreased testosterone over their lifetime, but it's more of a sequential loss, a steady loss versus ours is more like bam with perimenopause and menopause. And then how do we deal with that after? So there's a lot of things to do for just vaginal dryness. And that will be on my, that's on my site, theamazingover40.com. And it, it's about when sex hurts and definitely things we can do for that. Well, that's the main 
complaint that I do hear from a lot of women is not that they're not in love with their partners anymore or not attracted. They just don't have the libido, you know, Mm -hmm. it's out the window and there's a lot of concern, you know, well, is there anything I can do? You know, he's not going to find me attractive anymore. You know, all of those, all of those kind of thoughts. And in, in your book, which is is so great. I mean, I really love the information you share in that, you. you know, there's even foods that you can eat, you know, to increase your libido. There's, there's, I mean, there's definitely medication or other, other things you can do, but I didn't realize that there were foods that actually increase your libido. Well, there's, there's a chapter on aphrodisiacs and that was kind of a fun chapter because you kind of wonder, do aphrodisiacs, is that a really a true thing or not? But there's certain foods that will, that will give you the vitamins and, and hormones that give you the elements that you need to make adequate hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. So there definitely can be foods that will increase your drive, but is there one set aphrodisiac that if you take a sip of, you know, if you take one oyster and you eat that, is right. that going to make you think that you're going to want to have sex with your person, you know, your partner across the table? Well, if you're having a romantic dinner, you're spending time together, you walk on the beach after, or you kind of talk intimately, you actually take time together, that's going to increase your libido probably more than that oyster that you had that had some more zinc in it. But that's where I kind of, in the book, I, I kind of give a global viewpoint, like self-esteem. If you're not happy with your body because you feel like it's just not in great shape, you're just not as good as you were when you're 20, you're getting kind of down on yourself. Like there's a lot of ways we can then find that go to the gym, start exercising a little bit more, realize you don't have to have a perfect body. Like the magazines aren't really what it's about. And your partner probably loves you just for you. You don't have to be a perfect, whatever size that, you know, you think that's a glamour or cosmopolitan says you're you're supposed to be. So there's a lot of good chapters in that book about all the different factors that go into a woman's sex drive. And communication is also a huge thing. So if you're communicating with your partner and are you stressed, the whole chapter on stress, stress is a whole nother element that is overlaid on our on our lives and how do we deal with stress with growing with aging parents, with the kids going off to school you know, changes in our bodies, changes in our hormones, our sleep patterns. I mean, there's so many things that are challenging, but the good news is there's things we can do about it. And those things can make it so that it's livable and even happy and joyful. I think stress is probably the main cause of, of everything. I think, you know, disease, um, unhappiness. I mean, it just seems we're so stressed out. Well, when you hear in, that in this a lot, world. yeah, and, and stress is kind of an all-encompassing thing that sometimes people say, oh, I'm so stressed out, I'm so stressed out. And when you actually say, well, what are you stressed about? And where's that coming from? And do you really have to do all the things you're doing? And do you, like, are you doing it because you feel guilty? Are you doing it because that's what your parents think you should do? Or, you know, stress is a tough one because it's also very cultural. And then, like, we get, again, gifts of, like, honor saying, oh, I worked 80 hours this week. You know, I worked so hard and therefore you should get some kind of badge of honor when really we should not have that kind of work situation. We should have a balance. When you look at people in Europe, they take vacation, they have time to for their meals. They, they don't work 12, 14 hours a day, you know, but you look at different countries like China, Japan, they have a different cultural, they actually do work those long hours. And that's kind of how they're, the norm is. I'm not saying that. I guess I am saying that one's not as good as the other, that you do need some time to relax. You need time to rest. You need time to work, but you need time to play. And are you going to be maybe doing some online courses or anything like that? Can people reach you if they have questions? So yes, they can always go to my site and they can also go on Facebook and Instagram and they can always leave a question about something. Like if I wrote a blog about something, you can always go ahead and message me there. I'll also be doing some webinars and that will all be posted on the website. That's so great. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Diane. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.